Hey everyone, Chris here. You probably know me as the cooler, more insightful half of the Listen Closely with John and Chris podcast. We have a quick favor to ask of you. If you have a moment and you could take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast app you listen on, we would be extremely grateful. Ratings and reviews help keep us on the charts for the various podcast apps, which allows us to get more sponsors, which hopefully allows us to improve both the content and listening experience of Listen Closely. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Listen Closely with John and Chris. I am Chris out here on the West Coast in lovely Vancouver, Washington. With me as always is my friend of 35, 36 years on the East Coast, John. John, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. We're, we're through the Thanksgiving season. We're heading into Christmas now. You got the tree up yet? Uh, well, sort of. Yeah, I have a small bar top tree that I put in my kitchen, uh, but it's, it's really quite nice. Uh, how about yourself? Not yet. Not yet. But, uh, you know, it's on the list. Get, some, uh, get the tree, get some decorations going on. And, you, know uh, what I, you know what I've been meaning to ask you, in, in, in all honesty? So when you say you're, you live in Vancouver, Washington. Yeah. Do you tell people you live in Vancouver and do they get all excited? Like, they go, oh, you live in Vancouver. Are you a Canucks fan? Like, it's, because yeah, to, it's, to it's most a, people, Vancouver is, is a major metropolis in Canada. Prior to you moving to Vancouver, Washington, I never even knew there was a Vancouver, Washington. I'll tell you what, neither did I. Um, yeah, it's a little bit of a letdown for people. What confuses people more is that I'm right over the river from Portland, Oregon. So people tend to think that I live in Seattle because all they know from Washington is Seattle. But right. I'm really, like Portland is the city that I'm really closest to. I'm like three hours from Seattle. It messes with people in a number of ways. It really does. You tell them Vancouver and they think Canada. It's kind of like when you talk to people, you ask them where they went to college, and they say, I went to the University of Miami, Ohio. What the hell is that? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Or like, isn't there an Elvis Costello song where he talks about two people in uh, Toledo? <laughs> Toledo, yes. And, he's, uh, uh, and they're not referring to the lovely Spanish city. They're referring <laughs> to Toledo, Ohio. No, no. Um, all due respect to our Ohio listeners. Um, but all of that aside, John, I think we are rounding into the home stretch of 2020 with a heck of a good album here. Would you like to do the honors uh, introducing this one? I would love to. Uh, we are going back to January of 1989, and uh, we are diving into a great slice of late 80s, early 90s nostalgia. And this is the Ron the Cooked by the Fine Young Cannibals, and uh, I'm really excited to talk about this album this week. This is a great one, and it's one that I think not a lot of people really know. I mean, they know the big hits off of this. Good Thing, She Drives Me Crazy, but I think a lot of people don't know just how good the deep cuts are on this one. It's, it's you know, pretty start to finish a great album. It, it, it really is, and the deep cuts are deep, but they are outstanding. Really, listening to this album is a throwback to a more carefree, fun, and I think ultimately more satisfying world to live in. And I think this album kind of um, 
mirrors that. I think, Chris, one of the things I love most about this album is the genres of music that sort of get blended together here. You really have a lot going on. You have soul music, funk, new wave, straightforward rock and roll, techno. Don't forget ska. And ska as well, that's right. Uh, It's just a fantastic, fantastic blending of all these different genres to create really what I think was one of the best albums of the late 1980s. Yeah, it's a really interesting album. They have a really interesting sound. It's a really interesting background story too. Fine Young Cannibals came out of the English Beat, who in England were just known as The Beat, which were a very successful group in their own right. Uh, Songs like Mirror in the Bathroom, Save It For Later, which were big hits. Uh, Save It For Later is one of my favorite new wave songs of the 80s. Incredible song. It's fantastic, yeah. And then they split up in the early to mid 80s, and a couple of the members went off to form General Public, which did the great song Tenderness. Great uh, song. Their hits. And... Uh, David Steele, bass player, and Andy Cox, the guitarist, they go on to form Fine Young Cannibals with a singer by the name of Roland Gift, uh, who at the time was with a band called The Acrylics, which were, I think, a pretty straightforward ska band. Not really my thing, but uh, Roland Gift, man, uh, what a distinctive voice this guy has, John. I couldn't agree more. And can we just say for a minute how wonderful it is that they decided to name the band Fine Young Cannibals and not Steelcocks? <laughs> because of David Steele and Andy Cox. Right, exactly. Right. So it was it was nice that they got Roland Gift and they, they gave the band, a, I think, a much more satisfying name than Steelcocks. Uh, <laughs> but no, listen, Roland Gift, all kidding aside, had one of the most distinct voices and just such an incredible sound and um, I think really brought so much to the table. And when you think of Fine Young Cannibals, really, you think of Roland Gift, you think of his voice. It's a little like if Barry Gibb and Montel Jordan and Tom Waits combined to have a child. <laughs> like this, He's got this this high-pitched falsetto, but sometimes it gets kind of weird and gravelly. It's so distinctive, and it's really fantastic. I Uh, think, too, this album, in my opinion, is the perfect example of this sort of short-lived subgenre of music that went from the late 80s to the early 90s. And it was sort of this combination of soul music, synth-pop, new wave, ska, as you mentioned. Um, And, of course, the band had its roots in ska and new wave. But a lot of people would refer to this genre or this subgenre as blue-eyed soul, mm-hmm. which I think does it a bit of a disservice because many of the greats in this subgenre were of African descent or, or uh, had roots in the islands. Right. Um, but this subgenre is so interesting because it was as much born out of bands like uh, the English Beat or uh, Paul Weller and the Style Council as it was Daryl Hall and John Oates. It was just this incredible blending of different styles and different sounds. And there was this great five or six year run for music of this sort. And I think during this time, you had a string of these modern soulful synth pop hit songs performed by the likes of, I mean, we could go on and on here, but I'm thinking off the top of my head, Robert Palmer, George Michael, you know, the Faith album perfect example of what i'm referring to 
yeah. Simply Red, Go West, Rick Astley, and you know maybe to a lesser extent some of the stuff UB40 was putting out at that time, and even a little bit of early '90s in excess. But I think Ron the Cook and this band, the Fine Young Cannibals, are perhaps the best and perfect template, if you will, of what I'm referring to. This kind of modern soul sound from the late 80s yeah and i think that sound holds up a lot better than a lot of the other stuff that was around at that time in the, the late 80s um you know if you look at a lot of the stuff that was on the charts back then a lot of stuff that was popular um to me it was kind of going it was kind of going starbucks and what i mean by that is 80s music often has these these very like sugary hooks to them, uh, which are great. And I feel like in the late 80s, they did what they do at Starbucks, the music industry. They were like, well, people seem to like a little bit of sugar. So if we give them just a shit ton of sugar, they're gonna like it even more. So we're gonna put on the whipped cream, the caramel, the chocolate. And I think that some of the pop of that era got really, uh, really saccharine and kind of just very soft in a way. I'm looking at the Billboard Top 100, some of the artists in the top 15 or so. Paul Abdul, Bette Midler with Wind Beneath Your Wings, Millie Vanilli, Will to Power, Anita Baker, uh, <laughs> Richard Marks right here waiting, Boy Meets Girl, Waiting for a Star to Fall, Debbie Gibson, Lost in Your Eyes. Gloria Estefan, Don't Want to Lose You. Don't get me wrong, I, I still love a lot of these songs, um, but a lot of them don't age well. Whereas Fine Young Cannibals, I think they age a little well because they're more complex, a little more layered. Well, let me say this much. First off, I think you've been living in the Pacific Northwest too long because you're, you're using a Starbucks analogy. <laughs> well, <laughs> which is really bizarre, but... But secondly, yes, you're right. Um, when you put them in the same company as Debbie Gibson, Paula Abdul, uh, Millie Vanilli, we saw what happened there. Uh, this holds up much better than those groups, those performers, than Will to Power. Um, this was just an all-around better band. I think the talent level between Roland Gift, who had a gift, if you will, of a voice, uh, and, and the two guys who came out of the English beat, it was really just the perfect moment in time for these guys to be together. And um, they really put out an outstanding album. And, and, and let's also say how good the first album that the Fine Young Cannibals, Cannibals put out a few years prior was. Uh, I think almost as good as, as the Raw and the Cook. Yeah, that one's really good too. That's the one with uh, Johnny Come Home and uh, what are the others on that? Suspicious Minds. They cover Suspicious Minds. Blue is a great song. Great song. Uh, it's, it's interesting though because you, you liken him to Barry Gibb, to Tom Waits, and who is the other one? Mm. Oh, a little bit of Montel Jordan. Remember Montel Jordan? <laughs> Very interesting. See, and I'm hearing uh, perhaps a little more traditional, but I'm hearing Sam Cooke, Al Green, and a little bit of Mick Jagger in there as well. Oh, yeah. I think, yeah, that's probably a, uh, more complimentary. Um, 
but uh, yeah, I think that's, that's true. not to take anything away from Montel Jordan. No, <laughs> no, but he's fantastic. Um, John, what uh, what did the critics think of this one? Well, that's the thing. The, the, the critical reception was quite positive. And a lot of times, you know how it goes, Chris, when you get an album that's just so top 40 friendly and, and top in the charts and everyone's listening to it, the critics aren't always going to be so welcoming to it. But in this case, uh, the critics really showered this album and the Fine Young Cannibals with praise. Rolling Stone magazine gave it four out of five stars and called it a soulful gem. The Village Voice gave it an A-. Now, did you ever notice how nearly every album we discuss on this podcast has a grade of A- minus from The Village Voice? <laughs> I, I don't know that they've ever given anything below an A-. minus. Like, I wish I had The Village Voice as a professor in college. My, <laughs> my GPA would have been much higher. <laughs> the, uh, the Los Angeles Times, I think, said it best. And uh, they stated that the album just may be the best tribute to an update of American soul styles from England since the Rolling Stones Black and Blue or Side 2 of Tattoo You. And they went on to say that as much as the trio may borrow from Motown or Memphis, there's an original, there's an original vision that looks forward as well as back. And the Ron the Cooked peaked at number one on the U.S. Billboard Top 200 in July of 1989 when it ousted the album Like a Prayer by Madonna. Ron the Cooked would spend seven weeks at number one that summer. I would imagine that this album, Chris, was for many the soundtrack to the summer of 1989. Oh, it was. And, yeah. I feel right? Like... It, was, it, was, it was everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this should give you an idea of the band's popularity in the early 1990s. In 1990, People Magazine named Roland Gift as one of their 50 most beautiful people. Wow, that's a that's huge. Yeah, he is a Nothing very good-looking dude. You know? Oh, absolutely. He's got that kind of shaved head and uh, very cool-looking guy. And it's one of those situations where, like, you you look at the person and the voice that comes out of them is not at all what you expect. Yeah. Right? Like, mm -hmm. you expect that voice to come out of someone that, I don't know, looks more like Barry Gibb or, or the late Robin Gibb, for crying out loud. But you don't expect it to come out of Roland Gift. Yeah, no, it's, it's fantastic. Um, do you know, by the way, where they got the name The Raw and the Cooked? Was it from a film? It's from the seminal work of the French anthropologist who I'm sure you're familiar with, Claude Levi Strauss. Of course, E.L. Strauss. <laughs> Which, uh, I mean... Not to be confused with Levi Strauss. Yeah, right, yeah. The denim, right. <laughs> but uh, that's kind of cool, too. It shows these guys are, you know, they weren't just sort of a boy band pop group. These guys had a little, little bit of depth to them. They sure did. They sure did. Um, now, as good as this album is, as always, we start with the nadir, the low point. John, what, quite, what doesn't quite do it for you on this one? Chris, this was the easiest one for me. And I was pleased to have one of the three this week be easy. Because as you'll soon find out, my sleeper and zenith were another 
Sophie's Choice-esque situation. Oh, wow. Um, I went with the last track, Ever Fallen in Love, uh, as my Nadir. You know, Roland Gift and David Steele wrote nine tracks out of the ten on this album. The majority of the nine that they wrote are exceptional. And the couple that aren't, in my opinion, are still good. Now, you mean to tell me that they couldn't write just one more song and put it on this album to make it an even 10 that they composed? This last track, Ever Fallen in Love, I find it very dated sounding. Uh, it's a cover song. It's not theirs. It was a Buzzcock song originally. And I just think it, it misses the mark. And in my opinion, this doesn't belong in the album. Wow. Okay. I, don't I guess you don't agree with me. I, I don't. I don't. I don't love it, but I... I don't think it's a bad song. I think it's uh, it's a little repetitive. You know, they just kind of get in that. They just repeat the hook over and over for a while there. But uh, to me, I, I don't mind it. I wouldn't even put this in my bottom two or three. Really? Do you liken it to a um, venti latte at Starbucks? <laughs> I liken it to a, yeah, half-calf, double mocha, venti latte from Starbucks. Wow, you really do like it. No, <laughs> no, it's it's fine. It's fine. I'm I'm kind of surprised because to me, there's a couple that are kind of grating on this album, but I don't find that one grating. I I think it's not a great way to end a great album. You know, an album like this deserves to really end with a a big wow. You know, kind of something that packs a punch, and that it's a little. It might get a little boring, but it's to me, it's not terrible. Okay, okay. Well then, are you are you going to dance with your hand on my ass all night or are you going to make a move? Let's hear your Nadir. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, to me it was also very clear uh that the worst song on the album is Don't Let It Get You Down. Really? Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of it's in the middle towards the back end of the album. I, I do feel like the album trails off a little bit in the second half. Um, this one, Gift is kind of in falsetto mode the whole song. I think I see what they were trying to do here. They, they worked with a guy named David Z, who was a, uh, a Prince associate. And this to me sounds like an attempt at a Prince song. It does, yes. But instead of kind of that sexy, high-pitched falsetto that Prince might do, uh, it kind of comes across as just grating. There's this sort of electro dance beat going on in the background that doesn't really do it for me. This is one that I skip over. I agree with you that it's a little grating. It could be a little annoying. And I felt the same way about Ever Fallen in Love. But for me, it came down to the fact that, okay, well, at least it's their own great and annoying song as opposed to ever fallen in love which is one that's written by somebody else mm. if that gives it any justification i don't know but yeah no i understand the reasoning i just think ever fallen in love is is like head and shoulders above this one but uh really really oh yeah oh yeah unquestionably yeah um well should we just end wow. it there? That you're gonna... we just, yeah, that's it. I'm done. I've got nothing else to say. Wow. Um, no, let's, uh, let's move on because this is too good an album to dwell on the, you know, the, the one or two negatives here. Let's get to the good stuff. What's your sleeper pick? This, 
uh, if you're new to listen closely, the sleeper is the it's a pick that kind of goes under the radar. Maybe you, you know, at first you didn't love it, but then it really grew on you. Uh, John, what's yours? This was really a tough one for me. And in the end, I went with a song that was actually the first song I ever really loved on this album. And it's one that I still love. In fact, it pains me not to make this song my zenith, but I did what I felt I had to do, and I will explain in a moment. Chris, my sleeper track uh, is number three. I'm not the man I used to be. Oh, man. What a song. What a song. And you know, here's the thing. With a title like that, I'm not the man I used to be. A (laughs) song can go in one of two directions. It can be a really positive and uplifting ode to the power of change and reinvention, (laughs) or it can be what this song is, a sad little number about a downward spiral, which is really what it is. (laughs) And, you know, lyrically, the refrain sums up the sad and hopeless nature of this song. Wonder what I'm thinking. Wonder why I'm drinking. But it's plain to see I'm not the man I used to be. Shit, that's heavy. Uh, you know, the song has the unique distinction of being an incredibly sad, sad song, but one that is quite danceable. It's got this great driving beat, and I can imagine this being played late night at many a discotheque back in 1990. The song was released as a single, but really didn't do much of anything in the charts. Therefore, I think it is a true sleeper. And arguably my favorite song on the album. Again, this was not an easy decision up until probably about four hours ago. This was my Zenith. Yeah, I thought you might go with it for your Zenith because I know you love this one. And I really do. I'm a big fan too. And I, you're really onto something with what you're saying there. I think this song, what I love about it is that the, the song really matches the lyrics. You know, it's this slow burn um, where you can just feel this guy's uh, his shame and pain kind of festering. But somehow it manages to be pensive and somber without being slow and boring, which is kind of a remarkable feat, you know. Um, and I, it's just, it's a fantastic song. It came down to one of my, one of my two choices for uh, best song on the album. Now, did, did you go with this as your sleeper? I didn't. I didn't. Um, I I probably easily could have, um, but I went in a slightly different direction. Um, and this one, uh, you may give me a little a little flack on this because this was released as a single. It made it to number eleven on the Billboard chart. Um, but to me, it's just a song that I, no one talks about. I feel like very few people remember this song today and I didn't know if you were going to bring it up. So I wanted to be sure to talk about it. And that is don't look back. Outstanding. Uh, Oh, it's, it's so good. It's so good. It has this driving beat to it. Um, I think that one of the things that makes this great, you know, you don't really hear a lot about besides Roland Gift, the other, the other musicians in Fine Young Cannibals. Uh, to be honest, I had to look up their names when, when I was researching this album. 
Steel but, Cox. Yeah, Steel Cox. <laughs> but I, I think Andy Cox is a really underrated guitar player. Um, sure. And I think he has some really great subtle moments in this one um, that just add this, this beautiful full sound uh, to this. It's a really upbeat kind of inspirational song without being cheesy. Um, I love it. I love it. Well, I think that uh, not only do I agree with you on this, but I think that this is the perfect segue to my Zenith. Oh. And yeah. You went with that? Yeah. I did. My Zenith is the third single from the album, track number six. I can I can hear you smiling right now over there in the uh, Pacific Northwest. Um, track number six, the wonderful and catchy Don't Look Back. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, so while we disagree tremendously on the Nadir, Don't Look Back is just an incredible song. And you're absolutely right in your assessment, I think. And understand that this was not an easy decision to come by for me that I was really going to go with, uh, I'm not the man I used to be. But here's my rationale. And uh, you said a lot of what I was going to say about Don't Look Back. Uh, but, but one thing I want to add um, about the song and why I ultimately chose it as my zenith. As we spoke of earlier, this is an album that's a hodgepodge of different sounds from the late 80s, early 90s, right? Yeah, the techno soul ska new wave you listen to this album it sounds like 1989 which isn't necessarily a bad thing but then you get to don't look back and i think this song transcends the rest of the album and stands on its own with more of a timeless quality than the other songs it's the most straightforward rock and roll song on the album i love the jangly guitar yeah, uh, which is almost at times a little reminiscent of uh, like the Laurel Canyon sound of the 1960s, like the birds, mm. um, or even a little bit of like 80s, 90s era REM. Mm-hmm. Um, and that driving beat that you mentioned, it, it's catchy. You, you listen to the song, you can't help but tap your feet and want to sing along to it. It's just amazing. And it blows my mind that this peaked at number 11 on the U.S. Billboard charts, which that's quite high, yet you barely ever hear of this song or hear this song, and yet you'll hear She Drives Me Crazy Everywhere, and even good things you'll hear on occasion. For my money, this is the much better song than those two. It is amazing how it slips through the cracks. I mean, I don't even remember hearing this in 1989. Um, you know, I can remember a good thing being on MTV all the time. She drives me crazy all the time. Um, I, when I, I think I really came across this song maybe five years ago. I think I was just listening to Pandora. Um, and, and it popped up and I thought, what is this? And why have I never heard it? Um, it it's sort of criminally lost to time, but it is, it's so good. And you're right, it is. I think you could release this today and it would climb pretty high on the charts. Exactly. You would be hard pressed to find a catchier, more accessible song than this. Uh, and one that holds up quite as well as this. I, I, I absolutely love this song. 
and and I'll say this for what the third or fourth time. This was not an easy decision. Yeah. Uh, in many ways, um, I'm not the man I used to be. Is my favorite song, but "Don't Look Back" is so satisfying. It's so fulfilling. I never tire of the song, and I think people really need to listen to this song the second they're done listening to this episode. Yeah, hundred um, percent. But now I, I think what I'm really surprised by is that you didn't choose this as your zenith because I really thought you would have. Yeah, right. You're sitting there and you're thinking, well, he he didn't do the man I used to be. He didn't do this. What did he do? Um, well. <laughs> I did something, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it, but it's too good. It's too good. I, in the end. You went with the obvious choice, didn't you? Get past the fact that She Drives Me Crazy is one of the best pop, pure, picture perfect, pure pop songs of the 80s. There's something about this. I just, you know, you still hear it from time to time on the radio. I never get tired of it. There's so many sounds going on. There's that hard edge guitar. Um, there's like this great sort of pop synthesizer percussion with the snare drum. And then I think to me, Roland Gift is incredible in this song. He, he uses one of the most effective vocal devices I think that a singer can use, which you know we've talked I think in recent weeks about singers who have used falsettos. Sure. Um, and, but it's not just the falsetto, it's, he sort of meanders through the verses in this, in that kind of dreamy falsetto, and then boom, he snaps back down hard into his real voice uh, for the refrain, and it's just such an effective thing. Um, it is, he had this uncanny ability to, to switch in and out of sort of the, the head voice, over to the chest voice and then back and forth, unlike anybody. He did, yeah. It, and it has this effect of like, it's kind of like circling the wagons or, uh, you know, dr- pulling uh, meaning out of chaos, something. It just, it's this really powerful thing. Uh, I, I know it's so obvious. I feel, as the kids say, basic picking it, but I just think it's, it's an iconic, incredible song. Well, look, it is basic, but the fact of the matter is, this band that is largely forgotten has this song that you still hear everywhere 30 plus years later. So I think basic as it might be, the, the staying power of this song speaks volumes. Yeah. Yeah, uh, interesting fact. You know where this this song was recorded? I do not, and I'm not sure if this goes for the whole album, but uh, this one at least, Paisley Park. Really? Yeah, because of that connection to David Z, who was uh, Prince associate. Who was the uh, album's producer? Yeah. You know, well, no. Besides David Z, the I believe uh, Z produced some of the tracks, but the. I guess you could say executive producer of the album. Who was uh, Jerry Harrison from The Talking Head? Oh, get out of here. I didn't realize that. Wow. So look at that. And then you throw in, do you know who does the piano? Not to get into a trivia contest here, but. All right, now we're getting a little carried away here. Yeah. 
Who does the piano on Good Thing? Jules Holland. Yes. That's right. Yeah. It's, uh, what is it? Squeeze and uh, Late Night. In the Jules Holland uh, show, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, so we've gotten, we've touched a little on this, but do you have any personal memories in particular that, or pop culture references that you want to go through? Related? There's a lot. You yeah. know, I, this, this is one of those albums that I took to right around the time it came out. I mean, I remember buying the cassette, uh, being 12 years old, maybe. Um, but it, so I have a lot of memories over the years with this album, but the one that I'm going to share is actually one of the more recent ones. And I was on vacation in Florida a few years ago and we had just left the beach. It was this like sweltering hot muggy day. And we had, we were either at, I forget if it was Daytona beach or new Smyrna. Cause I was staying for about a week in that sort of general vicinity. So on this hot muggy day, we leave the beach. We stop at a speedway in the middle of nowhere, Florida, you know, very rural area to fill up the car and get some Froyo because I don't know if you know this, but speedways down in Florida have self-serve Froyo machines, or at least they did back then. I probably, probably don't anymore, sadly. So anyway, I'm dressing up my Froyo swirl with some tasty toppings. And what starts you playing? Do you do the chocolate vanilla swirl? I do the chocolate vanilla swirl, but for me, it's really the toppings where I like to get uh, creative. Yeah. I like the, uh, the shaved coconut. Yeah. which I think really adds a nice touch. Uh, I like the white chocolate morsels. Oh, wow. Um, and I tell you, when they have peanut butter sauce, that really just, that just makes it for me. You know, that's the, well, that's the zenith of the, of the Froyo uh, yeah. swirl. We've spent but, much time off air over the years discussing the amazingness of a good peanut butter sauce. It really is amazing. And I feel like you don't see peanut butter sauce as much anymore. You see hot fudge. You see caramel. People love caramel these days. Yeah. Um, I almost feel like peanut butter sauce is kind of considered passe, or is it because of people with these peanut allergies? I don't know. But you don't see it as much. It's a tragedy. It really it's is. It's unfortunate. It, it's, a, it's a shame. Yeah. <laughs> but so, anyway. Yeah. So I'm at the Speedway. Uh, I'm ready to check out with my gigantic Froyo swirl. And what starts playing inside as I'm approaching the register, but don't look back. Ugh. Of all songs, like you would expect, she drives me crazy. Maybe even good thing. But don't look back, really? Yeah. So I, of course, start singing along rather loudly. Uh, the guy behind the counter at this speedway in the middle of nowhere, Florida is looking at me like, what the hell is going on with this Yankee? And what, what is this song he's singing along to? And I think as I left, I grabbed my phone and I texted you for some strange reason. I remember this. And I was like, you'll never guess where I just heard don't look back by the fine young cannibals. But it was at a speedway in the middle of nowhere in Florida. So now, anytime I hear Don't Look Back, I feel the heat of that muggy day, and I taste the peanut butter sauce on the Froyo swirl. Wow. I think I remember getting that text, actually. Yeah. 
that is, I tell you, we said, we said that time has kind of forgotten that song, but apparently Speedway has not. And thank God for that. Thank God for Speedway. Uh, you know, I'm a big Speedway fan. Yeah. How could you not be? How about you? Um, well, I think, you know, on a personal note, just real quick, I, I can remember when the summer that this album was huge, uh, summer of 89. And uh, whenever I hear this, I have this very specific memory of being at a friend's house, our, our, our old friend, uh, Chris Morrissey. And uh, I can remember running around the house, uh, running outside and this song was playing. I don't know if he had it on cassette um, or if it was on MTV or what, but this album was, uh, was playing. It was a beautiful sunny day. And I just always go back to that moment when I hear this song, these, uh, these songs. Um, but what I really wanted to talk about too is a pop culture uh, reference from this album. Three, of the, three or four of the songs from this album actually came out earlier than the album. They came out in 1987. Correct. Part of the Tin Men soundtrack, which was a movie with Richard Dreyfuss. And Danny and, DeVito. Yeah, and Barbara Hershey. That's uh, right. I mean, talk about a, a, a power trio from the late 1980s there. Did you ever see the movie? I've seen, I saw some clips of it on YouTube this week, um, including the Fine Young Cannibals are actually in it. They, they're That's right. And they're playing their own music uh, in a bar there. And, um, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. You can see them before anybody knew about them. Uh, well, I guess at that point, maybe they had had one. Had the, well, they had the one album a year before. Right, but that wasn't nearly as big as, you know, the no. one we took. Um, you know, interesting you should mention Tin Man, because uh, I, well, I was flying home from Italy with my father um, in the summer of 87. And that was the in-flight film. Get out of here. I swear to God. And I remember watching it just because what else are you going to do for eight hours yeah. on a flight before you had, you know, iPads or, um, or anything, or Wi-Fi. Uh, so you watched, everybody watched the movie. And I knew not the first thing what the movie was about, but I thought it was just incredible that I could watch a movie on a plane. <laughs> I could see your dad being a big Tin Men fan. He's real big into those... 80s uh, comedies. Especially because it had to do with cars. Yeah. yeah. Speaking to anything that has to do with cars. Right. Yeah, I think they were, both, they were both car salesmen, is that right? Exactly. Yeah, Dreyfus and DeVito. Um, what, uh, I mean, we've hinted at this a little bit here, but you know, we always talk about whether or not an album represents the zeitgeist of the time it was released. What say you on this one? Oh, I think exceptionally well, I think this album does in terms of capturing the cultural zeitgeist. I mean, look at the story you just had of being at our old friend's house, uh, Chris Morrissey, in the summer of 1989. And you can remember clear as day, a hot summer day, running around, not a care in the world, listening to this album. This album was everywhere for a couple of years. She Drives Me Crazy in particular was everywhere. And these guys were everywhere for a while. And the thing with this album that I think is important to note, and why I think Chris 
it, it does such a good job of capturing the cultural zeitgeist of, of late 80s, early 90s, is that everybody, regardless of age, was listening to The Raw and the Cooked. We were in sixth grade, right, when it came out. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember most of our classmates being huge fans. But mm -hmm. then at the time, I knew people in high school and college who loved the album. I knew adults, middle-aged people, who loved this album. Roland Gift, as we mentioned earlier, was in People Magazine's Most, most Beautiful People. This album was a popular music phenomenon. It really was. And I think it was one of those rare albums that sort of transcended age so that you could be 12 or you could be 50 and you were getting into this album. And I think that's why this did such a great job of capturing the cultural zeitgeist or why when we listen to it now, it does a great job. But it also frustrates me and makes me sad that they never did anything after this. Um, I'm not suggesting that the Fine Young Cannibals would have been the next Rolling Stones, but when you had an album this big, this popular, I'd like to think these guys had another couple albums. In. Absolutely, yeah, it's a shame. Um, and I think you are, you're totally right. I, I can remember when I'm thinking back on this album and listening to it, you know, a lot of the stuff that I liked when I was 12 was cheesy, top 40 pop and this was top 40 pop but it wasn't I, I just I felt much cooler listening to it I felt like I could let anybody know that I listened to this and you know it wasn't going to be made fun of as uh cheesy pop songs um it, right I mean you went home at night and you listened to uh boy meets girl and and will to power alone in your room at night i understand but but you weren't going to tell anyone about that but this was a different story yeah no it was cool it was new it was it was kind of a unique sound um yeah i, so I, I think it uh it definitely represented that that late 80s early 90s uh little window there between between 80s pop and grunge. Um, and we haven't really even spoken of how this was all over MTV at the time. Oh, all over. She, she drives me crazy, good thing. I mean, those songs were in heavy rotation on MTV. Oh yeah, I can still remember those videos. And I, I mean, I haven't seen them in years, but good thing he's riding around on like a little Vespa, right? That's right, that's right. Yeah, I mean, that's how much it was on that I probably haven't seen it in 25 years, but it's still like emblazoned in my, my brain. Um, final question, John, is it a perfect album? Uh, not quite. There are absolutely incredible songs on this album. Um, but as great as they are, there are a couple of them that I think sound a bit too dated to make the album a perfect album. Uh, it's close to being a perfect 1980s album though. And I do love it. I really do love this album and I love listening to it and preparing for this episode. I just don't know that I would call it a perfect album. How about you? Yeah, I wouldn't either. I it's a great album. It's one of the best albums of that era. 
Um, it's, it's not quite perfect. There's two or three songs on here that I'm not crazy about, but that's fine. You know, they're not all, listen, there's only so many perfect albums out there to, it's no, it's no major slight to say that it's not perfect because it's still brilliant and amazing and holds up so well. Uh, so it may not be perfect, but if you, if you haven't listened to it, go listen to it. Go listen to it. And I think as you're doing that, think about, think about last season when we devoted an episode to the new radicals, maybe you've been brainwashed too and listen to the album and think about what might have been had these guys kept going because I really think they, they had some serious talent and um, like the new radicals, they, they peaked and then they just said, all right, we're done. And it's a shame because I think there was a lot more they could have given us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you can find the picks for our sleepers and Zenus on our Spotify playlist. Uh, it's the official Listen Closely with John and Chris playlist. Uh, you can also hit us up on Twitter at Podcast Closely or Instagram uh, at listenclosely.podcast. Uh, let us know what you think. Let us know any albums that you think we absolutely have to do. And uh, we'll be back next week with a very special holiday edition of Listen Closely. Oh, that's right. Can't wait. Yeah. Yeah. Well, John, as always, it's been a pleasure. You have a good week. Thank you. You do the same. Bye-bye. Listen Closely with John and Chris is executive produced by John DiBenedictus, written by Chris Charmiello and John DiBenedictus, sound engineering and editing, Chris Charmiello, technical consultant, Evo Kulishko, management, Kyle A. Mulvey and Associates, hair and makeup, Salon de Stronzo. Listen Closely with John and Chris is produced using the Anchor podcasting platform.